0: Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a No Film School podcast. I'm Liz Nord.
1: And I'm John Fusco.
0: And it's June 14th, 2018. On this week's show, a move that could change the gear rental market for the much, much better, why Anthony Bourdain was one of us, how to move past your creative blocks, and as always, news you can use about new gear, upcoming deadlines, indie film releases, and Ask No Film School. This week's show from downtown Brooklyn, New York. It's just me and John Fusco this week. Who, let's face it, are definitely your favorites. And uh, we're here to bring you everything you might have missed while you were busy working on films. So I'm back. I was I was on the show last week, but then I took off for LA as I mentioned a couple times. I was just telling John about how I had a little crush on LA this time. Um, but it was a great trip. And thanks to those of you who came out to the Become event and became more enlightened. Um, and thanks to the District of Creatives and Africa and Mike for having me. Um, it was really, it was really cool. Very insightful day. Got a little glimpse into like what that, you know, what the LA side of the industry is like one of the speakers was this guy, uh, Stan Rosenfield. I interviewed him on stage, and he's like a PR guy for George Clooney and Helen Mirren and, uh, you know, a couple little names you might have heard. And, you know, his perspective on the industry, first of all, he's an older guy, but also because he deals sometimes with, like, crises, was definitely sort of a far cry, I think, from the indie film world that we are used to. It was eye-opening.
1: So why'd they choose you?
0: Why'd they choose me? If
1: we're so far from the indie film world...
0: Well, I think this this particular gentleman, you know, was was the most, like, seasoned guy. And they had me interview him because they listen to the podcast, actually. Oh. Yeah, they're fans. And they said, why don't you come on out and interview some people on stage? That's cool. It was very cool.
1: So then why did you fall in love with L.A. this time? Why should... Uh our listeners think about moving to L.A.?
0: Oh, no. I don't want to be the guy that makes people uh, leave New York or wherever you are. Well,
1: you could be the girl that does that. (laughs) That's
0: true. I mean, I just outlined some of this for John. I'll give the broad strokes. Now, I will say it's not just because of my very cool celebrity encounter. I didn't tell you about that. Did you see on Instagram? No, I didn't. Okay. This is pretty cool. So... I went to my friend Lindsay's house. She used to work in TV here in New York, and she went to LA and kind of changed her entire lifestyle. She left the industry and she got into real estate. So, of course, you know, there's some bucks there if you do it well. So, she's doing pretty well. She has this beautiful house in Silver Lake, which is kind of the cool neighborhood. And I got to her place before she did. So, I was waiting in the driveway. And this Tesla pulls up and I'm like, oh, damn, like she's doing really, really well. Better than I thought. It was this gorgeous car. I'm not even a car person, but that Tesla was like, hello. Then it pulls up into the driveway across the street. And I I had been waving, by the way, like an idiot. Um, It pulls into the driveway across the street. So therefore, it was not my friend Lindsay who steps out of the driver's seat but Donald Glover. Oh, really? I know. Some people know he's also Childish Gambino. Yeah. And his recording studio apparently was across the street. So, and has been for a long time. And it was so cool. He was very recognizable. Like, I, it wasn't like one of those, who is that? That looks like someone famous. I mean, it was him.
1: So the encounter was really just you mistakenly waving at. Donald Glover? <laughs>
0: well, that sounds a lot like the kind of encounters I have, doesn't it? Yeah. If you if you know me, that's happened. that kind of thing has happened several times. Um, you know, I put it out there. Anyway, it was cool. Then we went on a date and it was like really fun. He was a nice guy. Gentleman. That part's not true. But it happened in my mind. Uh, anyway.
1: So last week you were wishing your boyfriend a happy birthday on the show and this <laughs> week you're dating Donald Glover. You know, LA changes you man. (laughs) What happens
0: in Los Angeles stays on the podcast. Um, Anyway overall I just I did enjoy you know LA this time and I see the appeal. I think um, it used to be that New York really if you were an indie person New York is where you want to be that's where the independent film scene is but as you know you and I've discussed and we've all discussed before a lot of our New York indie really indie rooted colleagues are moving out there and you know, the sunshine's nice, the space is nice, the industry can be harsh, but uh, I, I kind of, you know what, I'd like to be bi-coastal. Don't tell my boyfriend that either. Anyway, should we move on?
1: Yeah, sure. So, while things might have been pretty chill in LA, the rest of the world is still pretty crazy and hoo-hoo, weird. Hoo-hoo. Um, this week, <laughs> there, okay, this, this story has a lot of F-bombs, so prepare yourself, and also... Prepare yourself, even if you hate news about Donald Trump, on either side of the spectrum. uh, Because this is just kind of interesting and crazy.
0: Right. You're not taking a political stance. No.
1: Uh, So bear with me here. But uh, this week we saw uh, a match of heavyweights, I would say, as Donald— And I'm not talking about (laughs) Kim Jong-un and Donald Trump. I'm talking about—
0: I mean, they are pretty chubby. Let's face it. Yeah, well,
1: you know, this time I'm talking about Robert De Niro versus Donald Trump. Um, So obviously our president has had a pretty busy week. While off in Singapore for a historically surprising summit with North Korean leader Kim Jong-un, he missed one of America's most beloved entertainment award shows, the Tonys. But one star in particular didn't seem to be too bothered by his absence. Robert De Niro made headlines for going off script while presenting a performance by Bruce Springsteen to say, Fuck Trump. It's no longer down with Trump. It's fuck Trump. The remark earned a standing ovation from the Broadway crowd, many of whom clearly share similar feelings with the Raging Bull actor. In response, Donald Trump tweeted, quote, Robert De Niro, a very low IQ individual, has received too many <laughs> shots to the head by real boxers in movies. I watched him wow. last night and truly believe he may be, quote, punch drunk. He then continued... I guess he doesn't realize the economy is the best it's ever been with employment being at an all-time high and many companies pouring back into our country. Wake up, punchy. <laughs> um, oh,
0: my God. Come on.
1: So the the remark was actually, I think it was censored in the Tonys. I, I didn't watch it myself. Uh, but I'm not sure. I think that maybe one of the F-bombs came through. Uh, De Niro's Tony Award comment was the latest in a long history of public criticisms the actor has made against the president. Attending the National Board of Review Award ceremony at the start of 2018, De Niro called the president a, quote, fucking idiot and referred to him as both, quote, baby in chief and, quote, jerk off in chief.
0: Wow. De Niro
1: made headlines again at the Tribeca Film Festival in April for calling Trump a madman and a, quote, lowlife." Clearly, these two aren't fans of each other, and as we said earlier, I don't normally like to bring up politics on the show, but this story is just so absurd on every level that I had to mention it. If you had told me three years ago that I would be reporting a story just on a podcast, I guess, in general, I would have said you're crazy. But if you told me three years ago that I would be reporting a story on how Robert De Niro and President Donald Trump got in an online spat over a remark made at the Tonys, Hours after Trump met with Kim Jong-un in the first steps towards peace between our two countries, I would just would have suggested you get shipped straight off to the funny farm. But, hey, that's Hollywood, right?
0: Holy moly. I mean, I knew this story, but hearing the words come out of your mouth and in sort of in that context, it's like... What in the hell? And then to make it even more absurd, did you see the movie trailer? I did that? see the movie yeah. trailer, Yeah. So for those of you who don't know what we're talking about, in sort of in preparation for this meeting between Trump and Kim Jong-un, uh, the president created a, a movie trailer kind of showing uh, the Korean leader what a future could look like if the two of uh, if our countries collaborated. And it just sort of like adds to the absurdity of this story and of the moment we're in that like... There's such a blurry line between entertainment and reality and it's it, it boggles the mind, but there's a lot of food for thought and I think stuff for us creatives and writers and screenwriters and filmmakers to work with.
1: Yeah, the uh, fake production <laughs> the fake production company that uh, he named that made the film is Destiny Pictures. So it just gives you a sort of insight as to maybe how the film itself was a little bit manipulative. But again, that's, I guess, kind of the point. And it is interesting, like, just as a tool of diplomacy, um, sort of how Trump has this ability to uh, scrape things down to their most base level. And if you think about it that way, it it actually was, like, a pretty interesting tactic uh, to really get to the very base of the problem and, like, present it to Kim Jong-un in a way that was supposed to be entertaining, as you said, um, yeah, I don't know. I it's.
0: I mean, we're seeing one thing we that... can say about the guy, no matter what side of the aisle you're on, he is a storyteller. Mm-hmm. It's incredible.
1: So check that out.
0: <laughs> what a moment! So as you just heard, we always have a good time on this show, but this week I, I also want to address something kind of serious. We've had a couple of high-profile suicides in the fashion and entertainment industries here in the U.S. Recently, first 55-year-old fashion designer and businesswoman Kate Spade, and just this past weekend, 61-year-old author, chef, and Emmy-winning TV producer, and host of Anthony Bourdain No Reservations, of course, Anthony Bourdain, I'm going to focus on Bourdain because he always felt like one of us. He and his production crew were based in New York. He had a rugged DIY spirit and curiosity about the world, and he was a storyteller who put people first. Also, you may not know this, but he was involved in some other film and TV projects. He produced the independent documentaries Wasted, The Story of Food Waste, and Jeremiah Tower, The Last Magnificent. He was also a writer and consultant on HBO's Treme. The creator of that series, David Simon, who also did The Wire, wrote an exquisite remembrance of Bourdain on his site, davidsimon.com. Among many other anecdotes, he recalled when they first met, and uh, I'm going to quote from that, and I think it (coughs) might be relatable to some of us. He said of Bourdain, he wore life's mistakes as a badge and laughed at the improbability of his newfound cultural iconography. He said he felt like he was now racing through life in a stolen car, checking the rear view, but incredibly, somehow, there were no misery lights yet coming for him. And me, that's David Simon, the police reporter from Baltimore with an HBO production deal, heard the absolute honesty and wonder in that. So, if you hadn't gotten to know Anthony Bourdain or his work, there's no time like the present. In a strange sense of timing, his show Parts Unknown was originally scheduled to disappear from Netflix streaming this week. But it was announced earlier this week that Netflix has, quote, extended our agreement that will keep parts unknown on the service for months to come, end quote. Now, I bring this all up for another reason. Uh, The industry is tough and there's a lot of rejection and it can be soul crushing for someone even with all the appearance of success like Anthony Bourdain. I also think that a lot of creative people are wrestling with demons and hopefully getting to use that energy or work out some of our stuff in our films, for example, But if you're having a hard time, remember that you are not alone. You're part of a big global community of filmmakers who might share similar struggles and triumphs. And try to remind yourself what you love about this work and why you started doing it in the first place. Wikipedia has a pretty comprehensive list of free suicide crisis lines broken down by country. And you can call these if you are in need of counsel or if you're concerned about a friend or family member and don't know what to do. Also, many of the stresses related to creative work, especially at the beginning, are financial. So on that note, Amdocs announced this week a new artist emergency fund with a rolling deadline. Nonfiction media makers are welcome to apply for this $1,000 grant if you're facing financial emergencies due to unforeseen personal calamities, such as health issues, eviction, or disasters. And we will link to the application in the podcast post. So just remember, there are resources and support out there, and I want to let you know how much we appreciate you and all the hard work you're doing to make great films. And now, here's Charles Hayne with some tech news.
2: Hey, this is Charles Hayne here with the tech news. First up, one of the original philosophers of capitalism, Adam Smith, suggested that there's an invisible hand that guides markets to be as efficient as possible that lower prices when there's more supply, that raise prices automatically when there's less supply and increasing demand. In Adam Smith's thinking, this invisible hand is actually the divine hand of providence. Online rental marketplace ShareGrid is now going to be having an actual human hand to help communicate information and guide the market with the gear guru and the new ShareGrid Pro. So if you've ever rented a large camera package, It can be a total mess. You've got this big list of gear you want, and there's some stuff you'd be happy to swap out, and then there's some stuff that's really important, and you send it all out to different rental houses, and you get bids, and they vary wildly, and you go back and forth emailing with all the different prep techs at all the different facilities trying to get the best deal and the best gear that's going to let you do your job. Maybe one house has everything you want, but their wireless follow-focus system is one you don't like, and you hate it so much that you like subrent that one from somewhere else. It's a lot of work. In fact, often productions will dedicate like a whole producer's job to dealing with rental houses because it can be so much effort to bring in all of these bids, organize them, and find the best deal on the best gear. So ShareGrid has set out to fix that with ShareGrid Pro. Uh, you put your list to ShareGrid, they get bids from you from a variety of vendors that are already on their platform, so they've already got a back end all built. Best of all, before those bids get sent to you, they get looked over by a gear guru and then get shared with you. Now, this is the really cool part. Why is the gear guru so cool? Well, from a technical standpoint, they're going to catch errors and swaps that you might not want, right? So it's really normal you send through a list. And if they don't have exactly what's on your list, a rental house will suggest substitutes. Totally normal part of the business. They want to rent a whole package to you if they can, right? Right. So maybe you really want cook S4s and you hate S4 minis. The gear guru is going to notice that one of the rental houses has actually put S4 minis on the list instead of S4s. Obviously, this is something you might catch as well. But is it something your producer is going to catch? Or is your producer just going to see S4 and a lower price and be excited by that? Now, as a DP during pre-production, you're doing so many other things. You're location scouting and you're pre vising and you're working with the director on visual design. And so you might not look at every single bid that comes in. You should, but you're really busy. And having a gear guru looking over all these, seeing what the swaps are, seeing what's equivalent, knowing what's not is going to be really helpful. Because frankly, producers don't often know as much about the technical stuff as DPs. And as much as the S4s and the S4 minis are very similar, I know some DPs who hate the S4 minis and like the S4s. Um, People are very particular, and uh, it is to each their own. I actually am fine with the S4 minis. So this is going to help you get a more honest, accurate bid from the very start and save you costly additions when you do your pickup. Because what could happen is you end up on that bid with S4 minis, and then you show up your pickup, you see the minis, you hate them, and remember, in this hypothetical scenario, the DP hates the S4 minis. And so you order the upgrade to the S4s, and of course, they charge you an arm and a leg on the full S4s because it's the pickup day. From the rental house side, hopefully the Gear Guru is going to help sort of navigate market prices. Now, obviously, if you put this bid through on ShareGrid, you might be hoping that there's going to be like a vast difference that everybody comes in at eight grand, but one camera company comes in at 1500 and you're like, I'm going to go with the 1500 bid but do you really want to go with the $1,500 bid? I feel like that gear is going to be worse maintained because they don't have the money to maintain it, and that rental house is going to, like, send you out fewer accessories, and when you're out in the field and something works, they're not going to replace it, and I don't know. I feel like having a gear guru there to, like, email the $1,500 bid company and be like, hey, guys, you're coming in at, like, 10% of everybody else. Like, what's your what's your maintenance like? Like, what's your uh, what's your support like? How many extra bodies do you have sitting around? Maybe you want to, like raise your bid a little bit, like you don't have to match market, but get closer to market and then invest a little more in support. I don't know. I'm not exactly sure if the gear guru would ever intervene like that. It doesn't seem like they would, but it seems like having someone looking at all of the market pricing that's coming in from all these rental houses and being able to communicate with rental houses. Also, if if one rental house is consistently bidding twice what everybody else is, being able to drop them in an email and being like, hey guys, you always bid like twice what everybody else bids. Like I, rem- I know as a vendor, like when I owned a post house, I would have loved to know what other people are bidding just out of curiosity. Um, and in fact, one time, one of our clients did show us all the other bids they got on a job because we were friendly with them and we were curious and it was fascinating. So hopefully the gear guru is going to look over these lists and make life easier for DPs. Hopefully there will be communication between the gear guru and the rental houses I think that there's some real fascinating potential. On a personal note, I tried to build something similar in 2006, 2007, emailing a bunch of people um, from Olance, or one of those like outsourcing permalance sites, trying to figure out how I would build something similar. And it's always really exciting when an idea you once had, like, someone finally builds it. And uh, I couldn't be more excited that it was built by the nice folks over at ShareGrid. So I have a tagline for you guys, ShareGrid, to replace the invisible hand of providence, ShareGrid Pro. They're probably not gonna use that tagline, but they totally should. All right, next up, Frame.io is bringing all their great video review tools to still photos with the new image review. So image review brings like commenting and markup and drawing on the thing and all of those things that you get out of Frame.io for video, but to still images. All of their marketing around this right now is built around the final image review for like marketing and posters. So you're like looking at a final graphic and you're like, do we have this date right? Like, do we need to retouch this? And yeah, that's all going to be cool. But honestly, what I'm excited about for this is scouting prep and previs. I can't tell you the number of times we've come back from a scout and, like, all of a sudden, like, the photos are in a Dropbox where it's, like, harder to comment or it's harder to keep track of them or it's on a Google Drive or, like, the photos get put in a private Facebook board so that we can comment, but you can't draw on top of them. And then there's always that one person on the team who's like, I don't have Facebook because they're going to read all my stuff in privacy, which, like, fair. Totally respect that. I'm not judging that, but it makes it harder to share a Facebook group with a team. Whereas a paid service like Frame.io, where like everybody will sign up and you can give logins out to all the team members, where even better than that, you can like draw on it is way more exciting. So like, let's say we took all of our previous shots on location and then we take a wide shot of the location. You can like draw out like, ah, I think we're gonna do a camera thing here and a camera thing here. Base camp should be over here. Let's put all the truck parking here. That'll never be in shot and then other team members can like see the images the producers the first ad can see it you know if you're on a big show and there's a teamster captain the teamster captain can be like oh hey i can't get my trucks over there can i park them over here and draw it on the image rather than like getting on a call and being like oh hey i actually can't park up in that next by that green tree can i be down there by the garbage can like they can just draw on the thing so as like a prep tool super exciting uh It's going to make life a lot easier to have all of these tools available in a platform that, frankly, a lot of us who are also involved in the post-end are already using. That is image review from Frame.io. Last up, Aerie Raw comes to the Aerie Amira. So while the Alexa line gets all the attention with, like, the LF and the 65 and all that cool stuff, the Amira line is kind of a wonderful little sibling platform smaller, lighter weight, originally intended more for dock style work with like different lens man options. There's a Super sixteen modes, so you can work with broadcast lenses. The Amira was actually the first in the Aerie line to take internal LUTs, which makes sense because you want to pop an internal LUT on there if you're doing like a really quick turnaround job. It like from a workflow perspective was smart, but it was definitely like, woo, little brother getting getting features before Big Sister. Um also, it shot internal 4K to ProRes before the Alexis did. However, it has long lacked RAW support. Five years ago, this wasn't a big deal. Many people, even on Alexa jobs, were doing like ProRes instead of RAW on like million or two million dollar features just because RAW was costly and you had to get the codecs out and hard drive filled up so quickly with RAW. Today, with the increasing popularity of RAW and ProRes Raw coming to Even really affordable cameras, getting raw out of an Amira makes sense. So, because Aerie does not sit around and rest on their laurels, you can now get an upgrade license to add raw to the camera. Which, funnily enough, is making the Amira closer and closer to a full-size Alexa. That has been the Tech News. All right, this week with Ask No Film School, Madeline, and I'm going to point this out, we... We suggest full names or even require full names. So, Madeline, if you could please edit your user account with your full name. Madeline asks I don't know if this is a rut or if it's just me not being able to get myself off the ground with my filmmaking. I'm a student who's interested in filmmaking and writing. I've had tons of stellar ideas, but none of them are producible. I lack big budget resources. I don't even think zero budget is the word to describe my resources. I'll have a great idea that's able to be made, but then I like start negative thinking about it, like I think it's not good enough, no one will be interested, or it just seems like gross, like a food that was once appetizing, but, but now it's not. I don't want to complain, but I don't have locations that I want, everything I do have access to doesn't fit my plots, my stories are too involved, I don't even know actors, I feel stuck and lost. I have a great DSLR camera tripod and shotgun mic sitting right next to me, but I can't pull it out without self-doubt creeping in. Help. Madeline, well, I wanted to answer this question since we normally stick to more technical answers, but this question is legitimately a huge struggle that practically every filmmaker goes through. Also, because you talked about it in a really beautiful way with the phrase, like a food that was once appetizing but isn't anymore. That's exactly it. That feeling. I know that feeling so well that like, oh, I just ate so much pizza. And now I'm looking at that pizza and it looks disgusting that like that, like, oh, I'm looking at my camera bag and I could pull it out and make something. But it, it's not that like resistance, that thing. Oh, I know it. Every creative knows it. It is a thing. And it's a thing we all struggle with. So first off, take yourself off a hook. This is something everybody goes through creative blocks are real. The simplest and most annoying advice is to just push through it. Like write 20 minutes every morning, no matter what, and try and turn off that critic that judges it. If you can't do 20, try writing one minute every morning for a while until you can work up to 20. Like running or eating vegetables, it gets easier the more regularly you do it. Perfectionism, which is, I think, one of the things you're struggling with, is you have an idea that you love and then it's not perfect, so you kind of grow to hate it. This is a problem that everybody struggles with. And there's a real freedom in giving yourself the ability to just do the work, make it, show it, and move on. Um, Film schools serve a lot of different purposes. Like in a technical era where you can get all the technical information online, film school isn't really where you go to learn technical stuff anymore. Um, Although you can learn technical stuff in film school and we certainly teach it in film school. But um, the two big things that I always tell people when they ask me about film school that you still get out of film school is one, community. You're surrounded by a group of people doing the thing. And then the other thing you get out of it is deadlines. You know, like when I went to USC, I hadn't directed a thing for a year. I directed a thing in undergrad and then my two years between undergrad and grad, I didn't make anything. Um, this was long enough ago. There weren't really good video cameras, but whatever. I could have made shit. And in my first four months at USC, we made five short films. And that discipline of like, make it, show it, talk about it, make it, show it, talk about it, make it, show it, talk about it was huge. And I highly, highly recommend it. So either give yourself that discipline if you can, or find an institution that gives that discipline to you. Regarding resources, every filmmaker ever has also felt like they needed more money to achieve their vision. Uh, If you read interviews with James Cameron talking about Titanic, there is stuff that James Cameron wanted to do on Titanic that James Cameron could not do on Titanic. On Titanic. A movie with, like, a cripplingly huge budget. But every filmmaker learns how to fit their projects within the restrictions of reality. But! Learning to work within the restrictions of reality is not actually something you can learn in the abstract. You can't, like, sit in a chair with a notepad and be like, how do I learn to work with reality? You actually have to do it over and over and over again and get better at it. You have to make a lot of little projects. Some are way too big. Like, they need a million dollars, and you try and do them for $5,000, and you're like, oh, that looks shitty. And then some are like, ah, I needed $500, and I spent $750, and it looks great. I totally found the story that fits that. You learn it by doing it a lot. You know, even if you have $100, if you have that DSLR tripod and microphone, like who cares if you know actors like sucker your family and friends into just doing stuff and make it and make another thing and make another thing. And you will learn how to to fit the things you can do within your resources. Um, There are amazing projects done for nothing. We see them all the time where we're like, oh, my God, that was like so emotionally affecting. And it was like four actors in the woods. So, uh, you know, in the words of uh, Beckett, fail, fail again, fail better. Like, just keep doing it and you will learn by exercising it how to have ideas within your resources and and how to execute on ideas bigger than your resources. After that, I think there's two books you should really think about reading. One is The War of Art, which is awesome, and less practical, more theoretical, but then there's a really practical book called The Artist's Way. All the struggles you talk about are the struggles of art. The Artist's Way is full of structured exercises that are designed to get you out of a rut, and it's worked for me, it's worked for hundreds, probably thousands of other creatives, and uh, I really recommend you give it a read. And more importantly, give it a read. I heard this great one once. Um, You know, you can buy a cake box and read the instructions, but you still don't have a cake. So uh, read the artist's way, but then do what the instructions tell you if you want a cake. All right, Madeline, looking forward to um, seeing your work when you pull out of your rut and to learning what your last name is. Thank you very much. This has been Charles Hain at Aston Film School.
0: Thanks, Charles. I just want to add a little bit to what Charles said there, since to reiterate what he said, this is a thing that a lot of us struggle with, myself included. Uh, I second Charles's advice for sure and wanted to emphasize this idea of community. If you have resources in your area already, like a film nonprofit or a film fatales chapter, join up and get out to meet other filmmakers who you can share resources with and work on each other's projects and motivate each other. If those resources don't already exist... I suggest making your own. You could put together a small film collective, a writing group that critiques each other's work, an accountability group that gets together just to like co-work, and on and on. We actually have an article on the site called Five Reasons Why You Should Start a Film Collective and How to Do It by a first time filmmaker who was in what sounds like a similar position to yours with even less experience. So she built her own community and now she has a completed short under her belt. So yeah, good luck Madeline, we are rooting for you.
1: And now on to some movies opening this week. On Netflix, you can catch In Bruges on June 16th. It's not the first time it's been there, but it's a good one to check out if you haven't seen it yet. Martin McDonough's first feature is, in my opinion, his best, which is saying something when you consider the response his latest film, Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, got during last year's award season. McDonough started off as a playwright and has been moving further and further away from the type of theatricality the stage demands. But in in Bruges, I'd say it's probably the most unbridled we'll ever see his writing on film. Starring Colin Farrell, Ray Fiennes, and Brandon Gleason. it's not small on talent either. The story follows two hitmen. One has just committed a cardinal sin and accidentally murdered a child in a hit gone wrong. As a matter of consequence, his partner is ordered to kill him for his misdoings. And it takes place in Bruges.
0: Jeez, that sounds really intense.
1: Have you not seen it?
0: No, I actually haven't. I oh, want to. It's awesome. Yeah, I think he's so talented. It's
1: really, I mean, it's it's... Inten- I guess it's intense, but it's uh, it's just like kind of a dark comedy, much like his other work. But um, really,
0: there's like a con- it doesn't sound funny.
1: Yeah, it's just a very dark comedy. Colin Farrell hates uh, Bruges, but like the boss who's ordered his friend hitman to kill him thinks Bruges is this like incredible fairy tale land, and like everyone should see it once before they die, and so he like wants the execution done there it's i don't know it's really it's really funny in my opinion but also yes very dark
0: yeah i mean i guess three Bill billboards also it's like has a pretty dark premise but i left a lot of times in that movie
1: yeah this is funnier And also hitting Netflix on June 22nd is Us and Them. This is Joseph Martin's feature debut that premiered at South by Southwest in 2017. The film is about a working class man named Danny who, angry and frustrated, aims to kickstart a revolution by turning the tables on the establishment with a deadly game of chance. He takes a family of wealthy pricks hostage and films the outcome. Oakley Anderson Moore got a chance to interview the director in Austin, where he said the story itself was actually deeply personal. Quote, I come from a kind of normal working class background and I was working in film, he explained. I was trying to start working on projects in film and trying to get my stuff made. I was finding that at least in England, a lot of the people involved in the film industry are very upper crust from very wealthy backgrounds and stuff. So maybe this is sort of a way to get back at those people. You can read the full interview using the camera as an insidious agent. Joe Martin's Fuck You, Punk Rock, Us and Them online at NoFilmSchool.com.
0: Ooh, this is the F-bomb episode. Coming to HBO on Saturday is The Mountain Between Us. This film, directed by Hani Abu Asad, premiered at TIFF last fall. It features a stellar pair of leads in Idris Elba and Kate Winslet. Ooh, I love them both so much. They play two strangers stranded after a tragic plane crash who must forge a connection to survive the extreme elements of a remote snow-covered mountain. When they realize help is not coming, they embark on a perilous journey across the wilderness. Oh, my God. Stuck on a mountain with Idris Elba. That sounds terrible. <laughs> Steamy. And already out in theaters is An El Septimo Dia. This film is written and directed by Jim McKay, and it follows a group of undocumented Mexican immigrants who work long hours six days a week and then savor their day of rest on Sundays on the soccer fields of Brooklyn. It stars Fernando Cardona, Gilberto Jimenez and Abel Perez. And uh, Emily Buter is interviewing the director that'll be up on the site this week.
1: And coming to theaters on June 15th is a movie called Eating Animals, and if it sounds familiar, this documentary is based on Jonathan Safran Foer's book of the same name, which is an examination of the food we put into our bodies. It was famously said that the book would turn anyone vegetarian, but it didn't work on me. It's directed by Christopher Dylan Quinn and narrated by famous vegan Natalie Portman.
0: I'm curious, did it change your perspective at all?
1: I guess. I mean, I don't know. Uh... My feelings about veg... I just like meat. (laughs) Fair enough. That's all I can say really is. Yes, it seems uh, like I'm probably doing the world a disservice, but I'm sorry. I apologize, world. (laughs)
0: <laughs> well, I, uh, I've i seen several documentaries about, you know, food and vegetarianism and ethics of food. And they can be very, you know, kind of tough to watch, like kind of a drag. Haven't seen this one yet, but it's pretty promising. I mean, Jonathan Safran Foer is a great writer. And Natalie Portman is obviously an interesting person um, with, you know, some some uh, on-screen talent. So I'm curious.
1: Yeah, it's, um, it's like I think it was really thought of in that way because it got into some gruesome details about um, farm factories uh, factory farms sorry and uh, like just slaughterhouses and that whole vibe so the intensity he goes into that detail is like a little bit horrifying
0: so for a little weekend fun go see Eating Animals in theaters starting this Friday yeah and we've got some great uh, opportunities and grant deadlines for you this week with a deadline on June 18th is Daydream and Tribeca Film Institute's Immersive Films Program and VR Lab. It's a new VR lab from Google Daydream and Tribeca Film Institute, and it's managed by TFI Immersive, which does all the great interactive and immersive programming at Tribeca that we talk about every year. Um, In this case, they're looking for creative teams to submit projects that fit the theme of five elements of nature, aka earth, water, wind, fire, and space. Wow, second grant in two weeks that has a water theme. Um, but in this case, five teams will be invited to attend a VR lab in New York City at the end of July. Expenses covered for all domestic travel, and it's going to be a two day training in VR fundamentals to get you up and running. And then you each have until the end of the year to complete your project, and you get all sorts of resources, including $40,000 toward production, a Yi Halo camera, and free unlimited stitching via Jump, and of course, technical support from Google. So if you've been Considering making the jump into VR, this is a really kind of amazing opportunity to get your feet wet with it.
1: The Laureen Arbus Disability Awareness Grant has a deadline on June 22nd. This grant, through the generosity of Laureen Arbus, was established through New York Women in Film and Television, and gives funds to a female filmmaker with a rough cut of a film of any genre that touches on disability issues. The film completion grant gives out $7,500, and directors and producers are both eligible to apply. The IFP HBO New True Stories funding initiative has a rolling deadline, but we thought we'd bring it up because it's a brand new grant that supports several different types of makers in the early stages of development. That means it doesn't matter if you're working in print, audio, or, of course, video, as long as your intention lies in bringing your work to life visually. That means that if you want to make short-form, feature-length, or serialized content, this could be a good one to check out. Grants will typically range from $10,000 to $30,000 depending on the scale and scope of the project. So that's a lot of money.
0: Sounds cool. And we've got some festival deadlines for you, of course. On June 16th is the deadline for the Chicago International Film Festival, which takes place, guess where, from October 10th to 21st, 2018. It's actually one of the longest-running film festivals in the U.S. at 54 years. It's an Academy Award-qualifying festival, Also, every year they hold a new director's competition with a selection of first and second feature films. So if you have just completed, you know, one of your first, this could be a great opportunity to showcase the work.
1: The American Documentary Film Festival and Film Fund, Amdocs, which I think we touched on earlier, um, has a deadline on June 16th. This festival takes place in Palm Springs, California from March 29th to April 4th, 2019, another 2019 date. This is the early bird deadline, of course. And it's an Academy Award qualifying festival for documentary shorts. In conjunction with the festival is the American Documentary Film Fund, where U.S. filmmakers compete for startup or finishing funds in order to complete their film masterpieces. For the film fund, competing filmmakers can win up to $50,000.
0: That's actually the same organization that sponsored the Artist Emergency Fund that I mentioned earlier in the show.
1: And finally, the Philadelphia Film Festival has a deadline on June 22nd. This takes place from October 18th to the 28th in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, it features screenings of international, domestic, and local films, retrospective tributes, forums, panels, and receptions. The festival consists of approximately 100 films on up to 7 screens over its 11 days. The Philadelphia Film Festival was named one of 2016's top 50 film festivals worth the entry fee by Movie Maker Magazine.
0: Now for our weekly words of wisdom. I'm going to turn it over back to you, John.
1: So this week, the weekly words of wisdom come from Oscar-winning director Morgan Neville, who spoke with Emily Booter in an interview published earlier this week pertaining to his film Won't You Be My Neighbor, which is the Mr. Rogers doc. Essentially, Neville says that narratives are out and docs are in, or in his own words, quote, documentaries used to be the spinach of filmmaking, and now you're the cool kids. (laughs) I like that. And it kind of has this kind of also ties into one of the grants that we were talking about earlier in the show, which is that new IFP HBO doc grant. Docs are really having a moment and I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that Netflix and Hulu and even Amazon Prime are really uh, stepping up their production of docs because they're cheap uh, in you know contrast to the multi-million dollar, flagship series that they have going on or a billion dollar flagship series if you want to talk about uh, Amazon's new Lord of the Rings show. Um, These are just really cheap to produce and they get pretty much the same amount of viewers these days. So it makes sense for streaming companies to be investing more in documentaries. And Neville says as much when he says, quote, over the past few years, access to documentaries has changed. People, given the choice of non-fiction storytelling or fiction storytelling, will choose nonfiction just as much as fiction, so I think it's both a question of audience and access. Narrative filmmaking feels like it's in a rut. Documentary storytelling is just starting to explore the boundaries of what it can do. Real life is so much more messy than movie life. That there were things that happen in real life that if you were to script them, people would say, oh, that would never happen. So... That idea that you're allowed to lean into the messiness and the unpredictability of storytelling because the real world is incredibly unpredictable, that, to me, is really exciting. I think it's an amazing time right now to be doing documentary.
0: Oh my gosh, John, did you choose that just for me? That's like my sweet spot type of words of wisdom. Yes. (laughs) Thank you. I believe you. So we got some shout outs. There's a couple of fantastic events coming up here in New York if you're local or on a summer visit. The Human Rights Watch Film Festival opens tonight and runs through June 21st at the Film Society of Lincoln Center and the IFC Center. The opening night film is one of my favorites out of Sundance, Alexandria Bombach's On Her Shoulders. And this is always a really well-programmed and powerful week, so check it out. Also upcoming from our friends at Adorama is their annual Inspire event, which runs from June 25th to July 1st. It's a bunch of interactive sessions, workshops, panels, and networking events for photographers and video shooters. And as Charles Haynes says, we are big fans of workshops here at No Film School. It's a great way to meet people outside your normal network, learn a few things in a hands-on fashion, and often end up getting to go to locations you might not normally ever visit. So of interest to filmmakers in this particular lineup, there are several drone workshops, which are a great way to start digging into drone work, along with a series of hands-on sessions with cinema cap cameras like shooting a graffiti artist at work and um there's kind of interesting sessions like like charles said where you can kind of get access there's like after hours access to the met museum and different parts of central park to do these kind of like hands-on shooting sessions and stuff so yeah i think uh i think it'll be great and you can find out more by going to adorama.com and clicking on inspire at the top of the page
1: And coming up next Monday on the No Film School podcast, we'll have a really great interview I did back at South by Southwest with director Robert Schwartzman of the famous Schwartzman clan and his amazing ensemble of comedic actors, including Lauren Lapkus, Nick Rutherford, Darrell Britt Gibson, and Maya Kazan from the movie The Unicorn. We go really in depth into how a director can create a comfortable atmosphere on set for his actors and we get into some tips on how you can foster a creative and successful environment for everyone on the team. I'm really surprised that this movie hasn't gotten distribution yet because the film is actually one of the better comedies I've seen at any festival that I've ever been to. Uh... And that's because seeing a comedy can be kind of a crapshoot and a very risky exercise at festivals. But I think that this one was really good. And you can really see, like, how close they all were and how that affected the success of the film. So that's something that we talk about a lot on this podcast.
0: Yeah. And we we also talk about how, like, surprised we are sometimes that great films... Don't get wider distribution, but, you know, we're holding out hope for this one and some of the other ones we saw. Yeah, the reason I'm releasing
1: it so late is because I kept thinking that, you know, we get to release it in conjunction with a film release. But sometimes I just can't wait.
0: Yeah, (laughs) I think and I think it sounds like people are going to get a lot of value out of this conversation, even if they haven't seen the film. So you all have that to look forward to on Monday And here we are looking forward to the weekend because I have to say it, the weather is getting nice. Um, So thanks, everybody, for listening. Um, You can read all about everything we talked about on the show and links to the articles we mentioned and the opportunities we mentioned in the podcast post at NoFilmSchool.com, along with lots of new articles every single day about the craft of filmmaking. Um, And if you like the podcast, we hope you'll subscribe on your favorite app or leave us those nice ratings on iTunes and comments it goes a long way for our morale and also to help other people find the show. And of course, stay in touch. I'm at Liz film on Twitter. Do
1: you want to guess what I'm doing this weekend?
0: Are you are you <laughs> are you just walking around saying I'm Jim John Jim, John Jim, John, Jim"?
1: Nope. I'm seeing King Gisard and the Lizard Wizard. Three nights in a row. <laughs>
0: oh my gosh! Well, if you guys listen, you know regularly, you know that John is just stoked right now. Oh my God! Where it's are the shows? Be a lot.
1: Yeah, Brooklyn Steel.
0: Oh, all three. Yeah. You bought three. tickets to all three at the no, same actually, venue. No, actually,
1: I bought tickets to one, and then I got invited to two of the other shows. So.
0: Oh my god. was uh, just like okay,
1: yeah, we're we're gonna do it. That so. is
0: gonna be so fun. You're a super fan. We're gonna do it. I kinda wanna go. I wouldn't say hi to you. It's, it's all okay. Sold out. You'd be like, all Oh th- god, mom's at the show. They
1: sold that all three nights. Really? Yeah.
0: Well I've got friends. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> well have fun, John, and have fun you all. And uh in case you missed it on Twitter, John is
1: Jim at- underscore John underscore Jim.
0: Then I already did it, so I'm not gonna do it again. We are all
1: at no film school.
0: Enjoy those F-bombs. See you next week.